postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising a white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church Podcast. We're going to be continuing Cringeology, the Cringeology series today. And uh, if you're just tuning in, I really want to encourage you to go back and check out the previous episodes because each episode builds on the last one. And so what I'm doing in this series is I'm actually exposing seven false ideas that make up some of what I'm referring to as Adventist cringeology. And uh, now cringeology is theology that makes us cringe. And by exposing these, uh, my actual hope is to raise awareness of false ideas that are floating around our churches that actually damage our ability to do mission. Right? That's the bottom line. And, and these false ideas and, and this... Is why I'm calling it cringeology. It's because they're not actually part of Adventist theology. Um, they instead are concepts that have snuck in and found a home in many of our local churches. And so in this week's post, I'm going to be going um, into the next item on the list of cringy beliefs that uh, tend to float around local Adventist churches. And our focus today is on number three, and that is perfectionism. Um, but if you haven't heard the other episodes on fundamentalism and frugalism, then you kind of want to go back and check those out because it's difficult to appreciate this one if you haven't heard those uh, first. Now, what is perfectionism? Why is it false and how does it damage our mission? That's what we are going to tune in on today. Now, before I get into that, I want to take a moment once again to thank the Story Church Project patrons who helped this project expand and reach a lot more people than I would be able to if I didn't have the patrons. So thank you guys so much. Um, it's a huge blessing to have you guys backing up the project. And also a huge shout out to The Haystack. The Haystack is the voice of millennials in the Adventist Church uh, with a focus on life, culture, and theology. So if you haven't checked out The Haystack before, definitely go over to thehaystack.org and they've got tons of really cool stuff. Uh, you definitely want to check out The Haystack. So again, that's thehaystack.org, Life Culture Theology. And they are a sponsor for the Story Church Project as well. And they also sponsor a few other podcasts, which are really cool. Um, so make sure you head over to their website and check it out. My personal favorite, the Adventist History Podcast with Matthew J. Lucio. Um, amazing absolutely amazing guys he goes all the way back to the beginning of adventism and right now i think he's worked his way up to about 1919 somewhere around there so good guys so so good uh, so definitely make sure you check that out now back to our episode we're talking about cringy belief number three on the list of cringology and that is again perfectionism so again we're going to look at what it is why it's false and how it damages Adventist mission. 
Now, when we talk about what perfectionism is, I need to make a really, really clear distinction from the very beginning, all right? Perfectionism is not, and I want to emphasize that so strongly, right? It's not the same thing as the biblical doctrine of perfection, all right? So please, from the very beginning, let's put those two separately. They're not the same thing. Um, and I hope we can all be okay with that because if you conflate the two or if, if, you, if you refuse to accept that they're not the same thing, then my entire podcast is going to make zero sense um, or you're going to completely misunderstand what I'm saying. They're not the same thing. All right? It's a biblical doctrine of perfection and you know you kind of have to have blinders on to deny the fact that it's there. Um, but then there's perfectionism and that's what we're going to talk about today. So they're not the same thing. Now, the biblical doctrine of perfection... Um, at, at least as far as I'm concerned, like it's 100% Bible, right? It's, it's not just taught in a few little verses here and there. It, it, there seems to be a narrative arc in scripture. Um, and it's a pretty amazing narrative arc that I, I think we should preach more. Um, now, it was initially popularized by John and Charles Wesley back in the 1800s when the Methodist movement was on the rise. And today, many Methodists, Wesleyans, and Pentecostals still embrace the doctrine of Christian perfection as Wesley taught it, and that is perfection in love, right? That's the whole idea behind the biblical doctrine of perfection, perfection in love. And so John Wesley expressed his perfection in love motif best in his book, A Plain Account of Christian Perfection. Um, which lays the foundation for the 2015 title written by M.B. Winkoops. She's a Nazarene who's uh, sort of also comes out of the Methodist Wesleyan movement. Um, and she wrote a book titled A Theology of Love, The Dynamic of Wesleyanism, which is rooted in this idea that, you know, of perfection in love. So the Wesleyan understanding of Christian perfection, then, it's, it's really simple. It's about God's people walking in love. That's pretty much it, right? We, we start as spiritual babies, rebirthed in the love of God, and we gradually mature into his love. And this perfection in love is what enables us to love as God loves, right? It's, it includes our enemies. Um, and so this perfection in love, according to scripture and, and the way in which John Wesley expressed it, it impacts everything that we do, every area of our lives, because love comes to be the impulse behind everything that we do. So the biblical view of perfection, it's, it's not really focused on law keeping, right? Can you keep the law perfectly? Can you keep the rules perfectly? That's not really its focus. Um, the biblical view of perfection is about being restored to the image of love and living lives in harmony with love, both in who we are in private and in public, right? Love becomes the impulse of, of who we are and, and what we do. Um, and Wesley pretty much summarized this in his book, Plain account of, or account, yeah, plain account of Christian perfection when he wrote, and I quote, by perfection, I mean the humble, gentle, patient love of God and our neighbor ruling our tempers, words, and actions, end quote. Um, and I, you know, I struggle to think of anyone who would be vehemently opposed to, to that. Now, there might be some theological discussion behind that, but um, the view of the biblical view of Christian perfection, as, as far as I'm concerned, is, is pretty cool. Um, and I guess I'll expand on that a little bit more as we go. So I want to move on and, and talk about how this differs from perfectionism, okay? Um, so perfectionism, on the other hand, it, it's, it's different. Um, perfectionism is pretty much a perversion of the biblical doctrine of perfection. And it emerges when fundamentalism, which we talked about in part one, 
and the frugalism, which we talked about in part two, take over a person's view of salvation. Now, if you haven't heard those episodes, then it's going to be really hard for you to connect those dots. So again, please go back and check those out because once you have them, then you can connect the dots to, to today's episode. Um, but from there, what you end up with, uh, once you've got fundamentalism and frugalism sort of leading the way you read scripture, is you end up with a twisted version of perfection that's pretty much focused on compliance with the letter of the law and not so much on growing in love. So love might be in there somewhere, don't get me wrong, but it's kind of like a side theme rather than the narrative arc itself. So you add to this the belief that the battle between good and evil can't be won until a group of people achieves this moral perfection, uh, this perfect compliance with the law, and, and things get even more awkward. So from the onset, like I said, it's important to distinguish between those two, between the doctrine of perfection and perfectionism. So the doctrine of perfection is about growth in love. It manifests in harmony with the heart of God, a life that's in harmony with the heart of God, mercy toward others, including our enemies, um, and living a life that is increasingly focused on God and others and, and not on ourselves. Perfectionism, on the other hand, is about impeccable compliance with the letter of the law. And in an Adventist context, this includes a strict unquestioning adherence to anything Ellen White said with little care given to context or common sense. And the end result of the doctrine of perfection, uh, when, we, when we look at it and express it in its beauty, is you get a culture that reflects the calm, lighthearted, and welcoming presence of Jesus, while the end result of perfectionism... Uh, well, that's a culture that trends toward rigidity and judgmentalism. And um, I'll revisit that again in a minute. Now, why is it false, right? Why is perfectionism false? Um, well, I suppose there's a lot of things I could say. And it's important also to note that this is a simple sort of podcast. I'm not going into a PhD on the topic here. So I'll share some, some things you can explore later on that really go into detail. Um, but I'm keeping things simple here today. And first of all, I would say perfectionism is built on the false premises of fundamentalism and frugalism. But perhaps more to the point, perfectionism is simply not taught in the Bible. Again, biblical perfection is the doctrine of perfection, but not perfectionism. So, for example, when Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father imperfect, some is perfect, uh, pardon, um, in Matthew 25 or Matthew 5, 48, uh, some people interpret that as, see, you've got to, you know, not make any mistakes. Jesus was sinless and, you know, you've got to be, you know, perfect like him. And, and they interpret it in sort of the, a way of you've got to comply with all the rules without breaking any of them. Like that's perfection. But when we look at the context of Jesus' statement in Matthew 5, 48, the context is about loving your enemies, right? He's talking about how God loves not just the righteous, but the wicked, right? He loves his enemies. And then Jesus says, be perfect as he, your father is perfect. So the context is about loving your enemies, not strict compliance with the letter of the law. And the truth is nobody complied with the letter more than the Pharisees. And it doesn't take a genius to see that Jesus didn't approve of their religion. And it's also interesting to note that while Matthew quotes Jesus saying, be perfect, in Matthew 5, 48, Luke records the same exact story with different words. In Luke's account, Jesus says, be merciful, just as your father is merciful. That's Luke 6, 36. So this is one of those small clues that reveal the doctrine of perfection is about being perfected in love 
its its main focus is not law keeping, right? It's love. And this is completely different from the doctrine of perfectionism, which is more about strict behavioral compliance to the letter of the law. So perfectionism is also false because it can't produce what it defends. While the doctrine of Christian perfection teaches that perfection in love is possible, it never suggests that a person must reach a particular level of said perfection in order to be saved, right? So that's, that's a huge point. Perfectionism, on the other hand, promotes the idea that unless people reach a particular level of moral purity, that they can't be saved at last. So it kind of makes it mandatory, like you've got to get there, right? You've got to reach this, this standard. Um, and, and so people then spend their life trying to attain that, that perfection. Um, but honestly, like scripture doesn't paint that picture either. To the contrary, the Bible tells us that we are perfect in Jesus. And Hebrews 10, 14 says that in Jesus, right, by one sacrifice, I'm quoting here, by one sacrifice, Jesus made perfect forever those who are being made holy, which simply means that we are counted perfect in Christ, right? We're already perfect in Christ and complete as we are in the process of being sanctified. So not yet complete. Right? And, and Paul affirms this once again, when he wrote that believers stand before God, and I quote, holy without blemish and free from accusation. That's Colossians 1.22, because we're covered by Jesus, right? Um, and, and so sometimes people make this false distinction that if, if you believe that um, perfection isn't a mandatory thing for salvation, that you're somehow um, watering down the importance of sanctification and, and nothing could be further from the truth, right? Nothing could be further from the truth. And, and the reality is that this version of perfectionism, when you promote this really like sort of mandated thing, it, it doesn't actually produce a, a perfect Christian life in any way, shape or form. And I'll, I'll, I'll probably revisit that in a little while. But the beauty of all of this is that it's the hope of the gospel, right? It's the promise that we are safe in God's arms um, or in that promise that a person can grow into perfect love. So if, if you don't have that hope or peace in your heart, you simply cannot be perfected in love because you're always anxious, afraid, and uptight. I mean, bottom line, right? It's, it's like any other relationship. If you don't feel safe in your marriage and your business relationship or your social relationships, you're, you're not going to thrive. And if the same way, or in the same way, rather, if, if we don't feel safe in God's arms, despite our flaws, we're never going to be able to thrive. So God first has to relieve our anxiety. He has to remove our fears and calm our apprehensions about him. And only then can we actually grow in love because then we're no longer worried about ourselves, right? We're no longer focused on ourselves. And this is why John says, um, and I quote, perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And John goes so far as to say that the one who fears is not made perfect in love. That's first John 4, 18. And the reason is simple. Like you can't be stressed out about your salvation, worried if you're going to survive the time of trouble or be counted worthy of salvation and, and love like Jesus at the same time. You can only be perfected in love if there is first perfect peace in the soul. And that peace comes from knowing that Jesus is our salvation from beginning to end. And because of this, John could also say all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. 
That's 1 John 3.3. 3. So the lack of this hope is the reason why perfectionism always fails to produce what it promotes, because without the hope, there really can't be any victory. Now, Ellen White also rejected perfectionism. She definitely taught the doctrine of Christian perfection. Of this, there can be no doubt. Um, and she would have learned it as a Methodist, because again, this is a staple of Wesleyan theology. But she didn't teach perfectionism. And we see this reflected in statements like from Acts of the Apostles, page 560, where she says that so long as Satan reigns, we shall have self, self to subdue, besetting sins to overcome. So long as life shall last, there will be no stopping place, no point which we can reach and say, I have fully attained, right? And she goes on to say, look, sanctification is the result of lifelong obedience, right? Like this is, this is, this is a, a dynamic and, and, and lifelong experience. It's not something instantaneous, and it's not something static, like some finish line that you're supposed to reach. Now, she has another statement that I really like from Science at the Times, March 23, 1888. This is at the time, you know, where the SDA church was really hashing it out over the issue of righteousness by faith. And she wrote this statement, we cannot say, I am sinless, till this vile body is changed and fashioned like unto his glorious body. So she's talking about, you know, the when Jesus returns and this corruptible puts on incorruption, you know, that, that text. But she continues, if we constantly seek to follow Jesus, the blessed hope is ours of standing before the throne of God without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, complete in Christ, robed in his righteousness and perfection, end quote. Now, of course, um, you can find a ton of other quotes where Ellen White talks about God's people being perfect. And honestly, like we should celebrate this, right? Sometimes we run away from that because the perfectionists or perfectionism has hijacked those concepts and turned them into something quite repulsive. Um, but we should really celebrate this. And I often think like every time I walk into a church where nobody says hello, and boy, is that common, right? Where, where, or I... I hear about churches where victims of abuse are ignored and ostracized, or where women are, are treated as substandard creatures, um, or where minorities are looked at with disdain, or where racism and sexism wander the halls disguised as holiness, or where sinners are unwelcome, judged, mistreated, and we've all heard those stories, right? Or where people care more about religion and Adventist tradition than relationships, uh, or where the youth are regarded as enemies of the church's identity. Every time I walk into a church where those dynamics are at play, I recall Ellen White's classic words from Christ's Object Lessons, page 69. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own, end quote. And that statement means something totally different when you look at it from the biblical doctrine of perfection than when you look at it through the lens of perfectionism. Because in the biblical doctrine of perfection, what you're focusing on is love, whereas in perfectionism, what you're focusing on is compliance to rules. Um, and so the statement means something totally different depending on which glasses you're wearing when you read them, right? And so when we understand those parameters, um, we can more clearly discern what God is calling us to. And, and we don't have to get rid of perfection as a doctrine because some have taken it to extremes. And rather, we, we can restore its Christ-centered vision by recognizing that God is restoring us to the image of love, right? The character of Christ. And we should long for that because that restoration is the kind of thing that will truly make our churches like Jesus. I mean, like, how cool would that be, right? 
Now, how does this belief kill Avenue's mission? Because that's kind of the bottom line that we're headed to here. And so here's my point. While perfectionism is not as prominent in Adventism as it once was, it did have its heyday. Um, and that heyday is gone, praise the Lord. You can still feel its influence in many local churches. And there's still quite a few ministries floating around out there that promote either straight up perfectionism or a sort of a softened version of it. Um, but here are three ways in which I've seen this influence damage Adventist mission. Number one, it makes us judgmental. Now, perfectionism leads us to focus on ourselves more than Jesus. And the natural result is we become more picky about other people as well. Um, and the real tragedy is that over time, this perfectionist ideal has led most Adventist churches to unconsciously develop a model of evangelism that only attracts the kind of people that are already sort of like us. It's, it's like they're safe to have around because they're not that hard to disciple. And so I've often described it as a square, right? And, and I see this in so many Adventist churches, like there's this square and we can effectively reach anyone in the community who already sort of matches the square. And we might have to, you know, like do, put some sandpaper to the corners and smooth it out. But for the most part, we can get, you know, those people into our churches and they fit in quite well. But if someone in the community is not a square, like say they're a triangle or a circle or some shape that doesn't even exist, then they don't fit in in our churches. And they can never fit in, no matter how hard they try. And this is a leftover of a culture that was really focused on its own moral perfection. When you're really focused on that, you develop a really rigid set of rules for your community and only certain people can fit in. Um, and that's really the downside of it. And this is why I said earlier, even though perfectionism as a theology isn't as powerful in the church as it used to be, some of its impact still remains, and this is one of them, right? Most Adventist churches, for example, would have no clue what to do if gangsters and drug addicts and LGBTQ people like just showed up on Sabbath. Like, what will we do with them? We, we don't know. But if a sort of well-educated person from the community showed up and they were interested in, you know, prophecy and, and they had a few vices, but not too many, like we could work with that and we could disciple that person. But you know, the bikey covered in tattoos who's got a meth addiction, like we don't know what to do with them. And and this is this is, you know, in, in my opinion, a leftover of perfectionism's impact and influence. Number two, it makes us more obsessive. Now, here's the thing. When a person's a perfectionist, they're often simultaneously a fundamentalist and a frugalist. Um, so what this means is everything they read in scripture in Ellen White is read with literal strictness and without Jesus at the center. So as a result, perfectionism sort of moves us to obsess over minor points of faith that aren't actually central to Christianity. And so some of us become health reform fanatics and others become dress reform aficionados and some of us obsess over reverence in the church and we bring all those quotations right and and others obsess over theological matters that they used to judge others with you know like hey you don't believe jesus was post-fall well you must be evil right things like that um some become apocalyptically consumed and this leads to a preoccupation with conspiracy theories um, that overstimulate the mind and become addictive. So the result of this is we come to distrust just about everything and everyone, and, and that fuels division. And of course, 
There's those who just can't get enough of the law. And even in churches where people have enough civility to be nice to each other, uh, there's this unspoken hum in the background that everyone can feel. And it's just not a safe environment, right? It's not a safe environment for youth, for visitors. It's not a safe environment for anyone. And so over time, um, anyone who's authentically looking to have uh, a meaningful experience with God, they have to leave that church. Number three, and this is probably the most important one, I think, when it comes to how perfectionism damages our ability to do mission, is the bottom line is perfectionism makes us co-redeemers with Christ. Now, perhaps the worst part, maybe perhaps is I'm being too nice there. Uh, the worst part of perfectionism in an Adventist context is it kills the church's main source of power or redemptive power, and that's the gospel. So the reason why I say that is because Adventist perfectionism is kind of like a full package that includes the belief that the great controversy can't end until a group of people becomes absolutely perfect. And again, we're not defining perfection here as perfection in love, but perfection in, in terms of compliance with the law. So once that group achieves this goal, God has effectively won the great controversy. But if it fails, then God can actually fail. Um, now, Pastor Mike C. Manea rightly identifies this as a pretty heretical belief that makes the final generation co-redeemers with Christ. Now, I don't have, obviously I'm, I'm in audio here, but if you go to the actual blog article um, on, on this episode, you'll find a link there to an article that he wrote on this whole co-redeemer thing that will explore that in more detail. I'm just moving past this pretty quickly. Um, but basically, Mike's point is it's kind of like an Adventist version of the Virgin Mary that makes the victory over evil dependent not on Jesus alone, but on a group of humans. So wouldn't this mean that when we get to heaven, we have to thank this group of perfect humans who achieved something no one else had ever achieved and were finally able to bring the great controversy to a close, right? Wouldn't that make them worthy of some type of thanks or maybe even worship? And so this co-redeemer narrative, then it takes our eyes off Jesus and places them on ourselves. We obsess over ourselves, our sins and our behavior, whether or not we're eating the right foods, avoiding the right drinks, wearing the right clothes, all in the misguided attempt to be perfect. Uh, I remember one time uh, hearing a preacher say, you know, um, basically encouraging the young people to imagine, almost like fantasize about being in the 144,000, right? And it's like, isn't that me just thinking about myself? You know, like, that's not really me thinking of Jesus and having my mind and thoughts fixed on him, but on myself. And so... Yeah, you know, in, in this sort of culture, what ends up happening is we lose sight of what truly makes us perfect, and that's Jesus and Jesus only. And so this heresy, Mike adds, has ironically delayed the return of Jesus, which it seeks to usher in. And in the end, it damages our missional capacity because we're no longer centered on Jesus, but ourselves. And that is an effort that the Holy Spirit is never going to bless. So perfectionism has a long history in the Adventist church, and I don't pretend that a simple article or podcast like this is going to answer each and every contention that people have when it comes to this topic. But for me, the theological arguments are not what convinced me that perfectionism is false. The thing that proves its falsehood to me, beyond a doubt, is the way in which this idea impacts local church culture. And the truth is, I've never once attended a church where perfectionism was believed and felt the spirit of Jesus there. While 
perfectionists aren't necessarily terrible people themselves. The ideology itself, it creates a toxic environment that makes it difficult to connect and feel at peace. So when I look at Jesus, for example, like sinners loved being around him. But when I go to churches that have a perfectionist culture, no one likes being there except other perfectionists. And that's enough for me to know that despite all the dizzying and endless ping pong battles replete with Ellen White and Bible quotes over perfectionism, it's simply not true. If God has any perfection in mind for us, and I believe he does, it's going to be the kind of perfection that makes us so loving, so attractive, and so kind that we will become the scorn of the religious and a safe harbor for the sinner, just like Jesus was. So, of course... The closing question um, in this is, how do we heal our churches from this? Well, three things. Number one, I want you guys to check out two podcast episodes that were recorded in the past. Interviews with Pastor Mike Manea, who I quoted earlier, or whose article I mentioned earlier. Um, and both of those episodes are linked on the blog, and I'll put them in the show notes. They're titled, How to Free Your Local Church from Last Generation Theology, um, which is kind of like the label that we place on the perfectionist trend within Adventism. Um, so there's two episodes. Check those out. Second, familiarize yourself as much as possible with the issues and address them with balance. And here's the thing. Often perfectionism spreads because we attack it with imbalanced theology. So rather than denying perfection, recognize that it's biblical and help the perfectionist understand it biblically, right? Instead of just throwing it in the garbage. And if you need help with that, I recommend um, getting your hands on anything by Alfred Leroy Moore or Woodrow Whitten, really good stuff. And so this should be a bit easier if you already addressed the fundamentalism and frugalism beforehand, because like I said, fundamentalism and frugalism make people extremely vulnerable to perfectionism. So if you've addressed those before, then you'll have a, an easier time. And of course, man, just preach Jesus until you can't talk anymore, because at the end of the day, Jesus is the only hope for humanity, and he is likewise the only hope for the perfectionist. Now, next week, I'm going to dive, woo, drive, listen to me. I'm going to dive into false belief number four. This is reclusivism, the belief that we must be separate, right? Uh, we're going to talk about that one next week because that's a big one, and it sort of builds itself off of perfectionism. In fact, as I said, each of these cringy beliefs build on each other. So next week, we're going to talk about that, and we're going to look at Adventist history, Ellen White, what she had to say on the topic, and, of course, Scripture and Common Sense, Looking forward to that, guys. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. I hope this episode was insightful and helpful, and I look forward to catching you next week. Take care and God bless. Mm -hmm.